Let's pray together. Father, would you guide us as we examine what this scripture has to say to us? Would you untangle our hearts from things, from possessions, not only so that others can others' burdens can be lessened, but that the burden of constantly pursuing things could be lifted from us? Would you speak the gospel into our hearts, the great liberating truth of Jesus? Would you let that be what illuminates this sermon and this uh, interaction with your word? Father, be with us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, the great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky tells a story about a wicked peasant woman that died without leaving a single good deed behind. Everything that she did was for herself. She grasped. She thought only of her benefit. She stepped on people. She was very wicked in the way that she went about gaining things only for herself, often through illegitimate and and hurtful ways. And after she dies, Dostoevsky says that the devil seizes her and plunges her into the lake of fire. And here's what he has to say. So her guardian angel stood and wondered what good deed of hers he could remember to tell God. She once pulled up an onion in her garden, said he, and gave it to a beggar woman. And God answered, You take that onion then and hold it out to her in the lake and let her take hold and be pulled out. And if you can pull her out of the lake, let her come to paradise. But if the onion breaks, then the woman must stay where she is. The angel ran to the woman and held out the onion to her. Come, catch hold, and I will pull you out. He began cautiously pulling her out. He had just about pulled her when other sinners in the lake, seeing how she was being drawn out, began catching hold of her so as to be pulled out with her. But as she was a very wicked woman, she began kicking them. I am to be pulled out, not you. It's my onion, not yours. And as soon as she said that, the onion broke and the woman slipped back into the lake. So the angel wept and went away. Pretty unsettling part of that great novel. But what is Dostoevsky getting after? What's the point that he is making? It's not that if she only had more good deeds that she could offer up to God, then she would be spared. What she's missing wasn't just good deeds. What she is missing is a recognition of her spiritual poverty. That everything that she had, every good thing was a gift from God. And that God's generosity, God's care for people extends to those even who are undeserving, even to the wicked, even those with no good deeds to offer up to him. People like this woman, and like you, and like I. The pivot point for this series that we started last week was verse Eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though... He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, can become rich. What we said last week is that Paul is laying down not a command, not a specific amount, not a tithe, not a tax, but he is laying down a test, a test of the Corinthian church, because he knows if they understand that, if they get the gospel, the generosity of God, the great mercy of Jesus, then they will give. If you understand this, Paul is saying, then you will be generous. You can't help but be generous when you understand how rich in generosity God has been towards you. 
And we're going to look just briefly at two things that come out in this passage. First of all, the reason for giving, and secondly, the results of giving. The reason and the results. He says here in this passage that my judgment is this, that my opinion, my advice I am giving to you. He is, I'm not giving you a command because a command is redundant in light of verse 9. In light of the grace of Jesus that I've just told you about, a command is redundant. He is given, Jesus has given you everything. And we have to see that all giving that is genuinely Christian is a voluntary response to the generosity, to the goodness, to the grace of God. And if you walk away from interacting with this sermon series simply asking, how much more should I give? How much more can I give? Then you've missed the point. Because that's not what Paul is after. What Paul is after is your heart. God doesn't want simply more of your money. He wants all of you and all of me. If we walk away just simply saying, I'm going to give one more percent, that's probably very helpful and very commendable. But it's not the point of this passage, and it's not the point of the gospel. Paul doesn't simply want to meet the need, if you remember from last week, of the Jerusalem church. It's a very impoverished, oppressed church. And when Paul goes around and plants churches around the Greek-speaking world, he asks them to take up an offering to assuage the poverty in the Jerusalem church. Now, he could do that in a number of ways, one of which would say, okay, here's the need, here's the exact amount, and we're going to divide it up equally among all of the Greek-speaking churches. So, Corinthians, when I come there next week, next month... Here's what you need to have. He could have done that and easily, given, easily gathered enough to assuage the poverty in Jerusalem, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I'm not giving you a command. I'm giving you a test. What he wants them to do is not simply write a check, but he wants them to eagerly give, to look for opportunities to give, to give sacrificial. Sacrificial giving in the scriptures is so much more than just that which keeps the light on at the church. It's a diagnostic of what and who and what things has your heart. Giving, sacrificial giving, is a diagnostic tool of your spiritual health. And it's an instrument also of your spiritual growth. If you're a Christian and you see an eager willingness to sacrifice on behalf of someone else, then you know and you can, be, uh, you can be affirmed that the gospel is at work in the roots of who you are. When you're willing to subscribe to a less extravagant lifestyle, when you're willing to go without so that others can have more, when you're willing to have fewer choices because you've lessened your financial capacity because of others' needs, then you see that you're getting a taste, you're getting a picture, you're absorbing into your soul some of what Paul is getting after that Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. When you begin to respond with generosity, then you can say, okay, thank you, Jesus. You are at work in my life. If you don't see a hint, a trend, a portion of that happening in your life, then we need to begin asking, do I really get the gospel? Do I really understand how richly Jesus has given to me? Then he says, last year, you were the first Corinthian church not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. What is going on is that they had begun to collect an offering, that he had sent a previous letter, which we don't have record of, to the Corinthian church, asking them to give 
to take care of the needs and the burdens of the Jerusalem church. And they began with great enthusiasm. They had a desire to give. Yes, Paul, sign me up. This makes sense. I see how richly I'm blessed, and I want to give. But sometime in that intervening period of time, their enthusiasm had lacked. And he is encouraging them as a pastor to give again, to finish the work that they had begun. Now, I, as a pastor, I'm not leery of sharing monetary concerns with you as the congregation because the church is an institution. It's a divine institution as well as a human institution, and the church needs what it needs. And there's great biblical example of pastors in the, in the Bible explaining to the churches, here's the need. Would you help meet it, whatever that need might be? And I would, do you, I would be doing you a disservice if you had stood up here like Brooke and Carlin did uh, a few moments ago and took vows to, to the church to support the work and worship of the church. If you didn't know, if all of the financial needs, if the, the physical needs, the material needs, the emotional needs in the church were somehow hidden from you, you can't keep the vows you've made to the church. So I'm not leery in sharing specific particular needs with you as the congregation. But I am leery that a call for money becomes about budget, it becomes about deadlines, it becomes about line items and who, how we're going to not make budget and so forth, and not about hearts and lives. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, great job. You have begun an amazing work. And when I left you a year ago, it could be up to 23 months or it could be a calendar year, then I left you and you did a great job. There was great enthusiasm, but something has happened in the intervening time. You've forgotten something that is central about the gospel. But instead of just laying down an amount, here's what we need to make budget. He's confident that insofar as they see the rich generosity of God, that they will give to others. Now, there are some great parallels in this passage to what's been going on at InTown in the last year, because you were made aware of a significant need in our budget back in November, and you guys rallied, and you said, I will give, I will support, because I, bought, I buy into what's going on here. And we saw this amazing groundswell of people saying, how much to, can I give? When can I give? To whom can I give? And there was a matching gift in the congregation that you guys went beyond, above and beyond, meeting that. And so we ended 2011 in a position of strength. And so what happens is that you have started a great work, but don't let the enthusiasm lag. Because what the church needs, what needs exist in the body and needs out there don't happen just in a periodic t uh, time frame. They happen constantly. And so what we'll talk some about ne next week about is the systematic, the regular planning to our faithful giving. Because needs continue. They don't just crop up at the end of the year. You've begun a great work. Continue with not just your, your treasure, not just your money, but your time and your talents as well. Now, one more reason for giving that Paul alludes to, to here. He says, this is what is best for you. Seneca, the, the great pagan philosopher in the first century, says this, and it's in your bulletin. For since in the case of a benefit... The chief pleasure of it comes from the intention of the bestower. He who by his hesitation has shown that he has made his bestowal unwillingly 
has not given, but has failed to withstand the effort to extract it. That's a mouthful, but Seneca, this pagan philosopher, gets it, that our money, our resources flow to that which we love. That those who, who give unwillingly haven't really given, they've just given up. Those who give unwillingly haven't really given, they've just given up. They've failed to withstand the efforts of somebody, some institution to extract money from them. What Paul is saying is give not out of shame, not out of duty, not out of guilt, not because you've failed to withstand the burden of guilt, but because Jesus has entered into your story with grace and with peace, that that is the biggest, the most holistic, the most fundamental invitation to give, is that Jesus has entered into your life with grace and with peace. And as you give in response to that, it will become, as Seneca says, your chief pleasure. You will, you will begin to find joy in assuaging the poverty of others. You will begin to find great gladness when you are able to give a gift that helps someone. You will be able to celebrate and be excited as in town is able to do the ministry that Jesus has called us to do. It is best for you to give because through giving, you're able to have a glad heart. And also, you will be less beholden to things as your salvation. You will be less tied to your resources, less entangled, less tethered to, to physical things. Your hope will be founded not on those things that you have in your possession, but your hope will be founded on the promises of God that are much more stable, that are much more eternal and lasting. At a party given by a billionaire on Shelter Island, Kurt Vonnegut, the author, tells his friend Joseph Heller, he says that their host, who was a hedge fund manager, had made more money in a single day than Heller had earned from his wildly popular novel Catch-22 over its whole history. This hedge fund manager had made more money in one day than Joseph Heller had made his entire career off of that book. But Heller quickly says back to his friend, yes, but I have something he will never have, enough. Friends, as you give of your resources in small ways that grow into large sacrificial ways, you begin to untie your heart from the hope that you've placed in resources, the hope that you've placed in money as your salvation, as your bulwark against the unknown, as your hope for the future. So many of us are, t and this is the, the American way, is that we are tied to money as our hope for the future. The reason to give is it's best for you and that it helps you untie your heart and your lives from being entangled with things as your salvation. But then what about the result? What's the result of giving? Those who have their hearts turned away from things, from things to God find that God also opens their hearts to the needs of other people. And in verse 13 through 15, the second part of our passage, Paul is talking about the results of those who give willingly. But he's also answering some potential objections, some potential questions that people that are invited to give sacrificially might have. And as all of us would ask, well, what about me? What about my family? 
Am I to be in poverty in order for this other person or this other church to receive great extravagance? What about me? What is this going to do to my life? When we open up our wallets to demonstrate that our hope is not in things, in our resources, what will become of me? And he says in verse 15, The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I don't know if you made the connection, but the Old Testament reading was that passage that Paul had lifted out of Exodus 16. And he's talking about this whole, this whole incident of the miraculous feeding of the Israelites in the desert, where God rained down everything they needed for physical sustenance, that he gave them food. But it was on a certain condition that they couldn't gather up and store for the future. They couldn't hoard it. They could, because it would putrefy. They would take it home, and if they gathered more than they needed for that particular day, it would putrefy and become ugly and smelly and yucky. They were called out each day to go and gather the food that they needed only for that day. And some would go and gather uh, more than they needed because they would bring it back, not for themselves to hoard, but they would bring it back to share because they knew that others in the community may be weaker, may be older, may be elderly, may be disabled, and they wouldn't be able to go out and gather anything or enough for their family. And so everyone would go out and gather what they could, but then they would bring it back, and it wasn't their own possession. They didn't have proprietary rights to that which they gathered. They gathered it for everyone. And everyone in the community opened up their storehouse and said, after I have what I basically need, I'm willing to give everything that I've gathered for you, for someone else. And Moses commanded them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. And what he is trying to show them in a very concrete way is that you are utterly dependent upon me. Even when you had abundance, you were dependent upon me. It was just hidden. And what I want to show you now is that you are utterly dependent upon me. You are not to store. You are not to hoard. Go out every day and get just what you need and then bring it back, not simply for you and your family, but for everyone, for everyone who belongs to the community. Now, a couple of things we need to see. One is that God is the great giver. This passage in Israel's history tells us that everything that you have is a gift from him. Now, maybe you would say, well, you know, I'm not really sure about the Bible's version of history. Or maybe your objection is, well, look, I've I've worked hard for what I have. I have been diligent. I have been hardworking. I've had great ingenuity in the way that I've gone about my task. But where did you get life from? Where did you get your parents from who paid for your education that provided for you growing up? Where did you get your ingenuity from? Did you merit something before you were born to have a high IQ? Did you ask to be born in the United States, the most prosperous nation on earth that allows you to have great opportunities that people around the world don't have? Certainly we have to see, no matter where we're coming on our, in our, from the spiritual spectrum, that what we have is a gift. We have not earned these things. And what, what Paul is trying to get across and what this episode in Israel's history with the man is trying to get across is that you are utterly dependent upon me and everything that you have that is good is a gift for me. Until we see all of our resources as gifts, we'll not give sacrificially. We'll give less than we should. 
and we'll not give joyfully because we'll be giving in order to try and pat ourselves on the back, to be self-congratulatory, to feel better about ourselves, to ward off that burden of guilt. If I can just give a little bit, then maybe I won't feel guilty when I come to church next week. If I can just give to this organization, then maybe at their monthly meeting, I won't feel guilty for not having served them. Until we see our resources as given by God, as gifts, as resources that we have no proprietary ultimate right over, we will not give joyfully, will not give sacrificially. But when you do realize it, when you do understand that you're simply giving away what he has entrusted to you, you're being charitable with his resources, not your own. So there's no room for pride. There's no room for self-congratulation. There's no room to say, look at me and look what I have done to serve this institution. No, because God owns everything. He has entrusted you with a certain level of resources and has asked you to be charitable with it, to be generous with it. But notice, notice the freedom that comes in that. Because when an unexpected bill comes, when you lose your job, when your car breaks down, when something expensive in your house goes put, there's freedom because you say, that's not my concern. <laughs> All of this is God's anyway, so he must know what I need. So when I lose my job, not that it's something to celebrate and jump up and down about, but it's not something that breeds anxiety and nervousness because we know that everything is from God. And I'm no, no longer tied to the hope of the future that those resources provide. I can let go and say, this bill came not by accident, and this bill is no surprise to God. He wants me to be charitable with his resources, but he's allowed this bill to come in my, in my life. He knows what's going on. Do you see the freedom there? Katie and I have, have owned and rented houses. And I tell you, the relationship that you have with your house when you rent it and own it is very different. When you own your house and you're asleep at night and you see this, you know, ugly brown stain developing on your ceiling, you begin to panic because you know, okay, I, not only do I have to fix the drywall, but there's probably a leak in the roof. And what about the rest of the roof? And you begin to snowball into all of these thoughts and all of this anxiety about all of the things that could be go going wrong with your house. Maybe next week it'll be the furnace. Maybe I have to install new plumbing. And we begin to get anxious and nervous. But what do you do when you're renting? When you see that brown spot develop on your ceiling, what do you do? You pick up the phone and you call the owner because it's not your concern. It's your concern, but it's not your responsibility. You call and say, hey, look, you need to fix your roof. Well, I don't care if it's going to cost $20,000. That's what you've said in the contract. You see the different relationship that you have with your house? It's the same way with your resources. When you think about your resources as you being the owner, you being in control, then you get anxious when there's a lack. Then you get anxious when there is a want. But when it's not yours, when you're simply a steward and you see the end of the month coming and your, your money is going to run out, it's not that you have no concern, but your anxiety level comes way down and you're able to say, God, you've given me these things and you've given me the responsibility to be generous. How can I be generous? Help me. Provide what I need. And that's our prayer each and every week as we take up the offering is not that we would have this great superabundance, but God, simply give us the, that which we need to do the work that you've called us to do. If the money doesn't come in, then we need to adjust our, what we understand to be our calling. Maybe we've gotten ahead of what God is doing. 
That's our prayer. What we need to understand is that your real riches lie in the fact that God has paid all of your most significant debts. Your riches, what Paul is talking about here in terms of Jesus became poor so that you could be rich. Your primary wealth, your primary abundance, your primary uh, 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 abundance is that Jesus has paid off all of your significant debts. Now, let's presume for a moment that you have a, a terminal illness, and you've come to see me, and I'm your doctor. And I say, okay, well, you're not going to like this, but there is a drug that you could take uh, that will cure this, but it's going to cost you everything that you own. You're going to have to move in with your parents again. I know you're 35, but you're going to have to move in with them because you're going to be impoverished. You're not going to be able to eat out, you know, ever again. Uh, you're going to have to sell your car and probably take public transportation. Your lifestyle is going to drastically change. You're going to be impoverished. So, you, you know, you probably don't want to take this medicine, right? What would you say? You'd say, you're crazy. <laughs> are you kidding me? What are all of those things if I'm dead? How could I enjoy those? Give me the medicine. I'll live in poverty, but I'll live. When you realize that you are spiritually poor, that you're impoverished, but that God has made you rich, that he gave you life, that he granted you grace, that he gave you salvation. Everything else, though not insignificant, is framed in reference to the the medicine of grace, that you see that God has made you rich in all of the most significant categories of life. And not that money is insignificant, not that having a house, not that having clothing is not important, they are but they're framed in reference to the larger picture, the larger picture of grace. Remember from last week, the Macedonians were dirt poor, but in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They gave not by calculating their material poverty, but they gave in recognition to their spiritual wealth, to their spiritual abundance. That's what motivated them to give. Now here, it seems like Paul is moderating that just a bit, as if to say the Macedonians were an extraordinary example, because he says in verse 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. The goal is equality. He's not saying that, okay, now you're a Christian, so you should live in squalor. But instead, he's saying that nothing we have is more important than anything that others don't have. Did you get that? Nothing that we have is more important than anything that others don't have. In other words, someone else's lack, someone else's want, someone else's need is much more important than what we have, than our abundance, than anything that we have. It could not be more important than someone else's need. That that's how we begin to calculate how much do I give. It's not an artificial equilibrium where every, everyone has the same standard of living, but one's material abundance does become a source of shame when there are others in the community that are going without if we're living high on the hog while there are others that we are, that we are nearby to who are hurting and going without, who are going hungry, then we should feel a little bit guilty about that. 
John Calvin says, and this is a very nuanced view of this, there is not enjoined upon us an equality of such kind, excuse me, as to make it unlawful for the rich to live in any degree of greater elegance than the poor. But an equality is to be observed thus far, that no one is to be allowed to go hungry, and no one is to hoard their abundance at the expense of others. The poor man's allotment will, have, will be coarse food and a spare diet. The rich man's will be a more abundant portion, it is true, according to his circumstances. But at the same time, in such a way that they live temperately and are not leaving others in want. Do you see what he's saying? It is not this artificial sort of communistic equality where everyone pools the resources and everyone pulls out the same amount. It's not that there, that there is anything wrong with being wealthy. It's are you attached to your wealth? Or can you let go of it for the benefit of someone else? Are you living temperately with your wealth? And friends, every one of us in this room, for the most part, is exceedingly wealthy compared to the rest of the world. I know there are many hardships in this congregation, and that probably sounds to you as an individual like a crazy statement. But relative to the rest of this wor- the world, this church is exceedingly wealthy. Are we holding on to our resources because we're, fear- we're afraid of what might happen if we let go? Are we giving it up so that others can have their burdens lifted? Two things in closing. closing. First of all, we are most human when we give. And secondly, we're most like God when we give. We are most human when we give. There's a human interest story on CNN a a, a while back, and it was about these retired nurses in Atlanta, Georgia, that went to a neonatal ICU clinic. And basically what they did was they gave of their spare time to holding babies in the ICU. And it was called Baby Buddies. And basically, when the parents weren't there, these retired nurses would step in and just hold the baby so that the baby would have a sense that they were, they were secure, that they wouldn't be sitting in some kind of cold clinical bed, but they would be held by someone who knew their name, someone that cared for them, someone that loved them. And to hear these nurses talk about it, you would think they were the ones that were being held. You would think they were the ones that were having the greatest benefit from this interaction, even though it was them who were sacrificing their time. And the reason is, is that giving is entrenched into your DNA. Having joy when you relieve the burden of others is entrenched in the very person that you are because you are made in God's image. You are most human when you give, when you alleviate the suffering of someone else, even though it may cost you That's why you find joy in those nurses. That's why you find joy in a mom that is waking up multiple times at night, and yet she loves this child. It is because giving sacrificially is the way to joy, and it is when when you are the most human. And then finally, we are most like God when we give. You were made in God's image, and one of the most vital and underutilized doctrines in Christianity is that of the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed in a self-giving relationship, that before there was ever you and I, before there was ever a world, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit lived in continual community, that they loved one another, that they shared life together. 
Giving is God's way of inviting you and I to share in that divine life, in the joy that the Trinity has in serving one another and serving you. You see, God receives joy when he gives. And if you're made in his image, then you'll receive joy when you give. He sends his son. He gives up his greatest resource. He says, all who are broken, anyone who is lonely, anyone who is on the margins of life, who is living at the edge or the sidelines of happiness, anyone who is impoverished of heart, I give you myself. Blessed are the poor because the poor can receive Jesus, can receive a gift so much more readily and easily than those of us who view ourselves as wealthy and spiritually mature. Jesus says, God says, I will give to those who see themselves as poor. Those who have received this type of love are in the position then to give, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. Now, there are a lot of things that you could do with your money. And if you invest wisely, you invest in a, a, the stock market or an IRA, each month you'll get a return on investment. You'll be able to monitor, how's my money doing? Is this a good investment to make? And if it's not, you'll probably pull it out and move it to somewhere else. And the fact that a few years ago, almost everything was a good investment, now we have to kind of reorient ourselves to picking and choosing. And we're much more conscious now of monitoring those those monthly statements that come in. How are things going in my bank account? How are things going in the market? And we get a return on investment. It's easy to uh, commodify. It's easy to understand if we're making a good investment or not. But giving to the church, giving to the cause of Jesus is nothing like this. In fact, it's a ludicrous investment because you don't get a return on investment in the same way. You can't see tangibly, okay, this is what, what my money is going to, and I can see that there is a return on investment. You may in big ways as the church grows and flourishes and so forth, but it's not as specific. It's not as particular. And oftentimes, because the church is a human institution, there's going to be times where you disagree with the church, where you have problems with the church, where you're maybe not excited about giving sacrificially to the church. It's a ludicrous investment. But, you get to join Jesus in his way of giving, that he gives up everything and invests his life in terrible investments. People like you and me, people who are undependable, people who are, are fickle, people who get angry, people who are calculating and everything about how it affects me, how it lands in my life. Jesus doesn't calculate that. He gives in spite of the fact that you and I are terrible investments, terrible return on investments. He gives, and he gives himself gladly. The Bible says that Jesus went to the cross to give of himself, not because he had to, not with gritted teeth, not with clenched fists, but he, he went to the cross because of the joy that was set before him, that he was made to give, and he gives himself up, he gives up everything to have you to invest in you. And when you begin to see that, when that begins to sink down into your heart and in your bones, that Jesus became poor so that you could become rich, then you will give, and you will give with exceeding gladness. Let's pray. Father, would you change us as people? Would you change us from being individuals and being a church that, that grasps for things? that holds on tightly to things, would you open up our, our hands and our hearts to give, perhaps to give more than we think we, we can, 
to give beyond our ability as the Macedonians did, or even just to give regularly and faithfully as Paul is asking the Corinthians to give. But Father, let us give so that your church can grow, so that the needs around this community can be met. And Father, would you let us find our hope, not in things, not in resources, but our hope in you. Father, as we consider this, if we are looking in from the outside, would you invite us to see the freedom that is found in giving up everything, in going without for the benefit of of someone else? Would you let us find that there is joy there, there is gladness there, that there is fulfillment there? Would you meet us all wherever we are? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.